When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. An object becoming now of great importance is the establishment of a strong front on our western boundary, the Mississippi, securing us on that side as our front on the Atlantic does towards the east. Our proceedings with the Indians should tend systematically to that object, leaving the extinguishment of title in the interior country to fall in as occasion may rise. The Indians, being once closed in between strong, settled countries on the Mississippi and Atlantic, will, for want of gain, be forced to agriculture. will find that small portions of land well improved will be worth more to them than extensive forests unemployed, and will be continually parting with portions of them for money to buy stock, utensils, and necessaries for their farm and families. The country between the Mississippi and Illinois on one side and the Ohio and Wabash on the other is also peculiarly desirable to us and is in a situation at this moment which renders it particularly easy for us to acquire a considerable portion of it. For the present, it is submitted to the consideration of the Secretary of War whether instructions should not be immediately given to Governor Harrison to treat with the Peoria and Kaskaskia chiefs as to the latter, which is most important. It would be easy to solicit and bring over by present to every individual of mature age. Thomas Jefferson, the 29th day of December, 1802. As we've discussed in the past, even prior to the Louisiana Purchase, President Thomas Jefferson had a keen eye on matters in the western portions of the nation and was determined that his administration would do all it could to promote and support settlement west of the Appalachians. As this memorandum to Secretary of War Henry Dearborn attest, the governors of territories in the West were a key part in his plan. And in this episode, we'll look at the roles that Governor William Henry Harrison of the Indiana Territory and Governor William C.C. Claiborne of the Mississippi Territory would play in this in their respective posts. For the moment, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Alan Ayers of the Political History of the United States podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. With each episode of his podcast, Alan brings great insight into the political history of the United States. He starts with the European Age of Exploration and weaves together a centuries-long tale full of information about how the political schema of what became the United States came into being. I highly recommend you check it out after you get done with this episode. You can find the political history of the United States online at U.S. Political Podcast, that's all one word, dot com. Or you can search for the political history of the United States anywhere fine podcasts can be found. 1803 found William Henry Harrison entering his third year as governor of the Indiana Territory. His tenure in office to date had found him trying to balance the needs of the present 700 or so residents of the territory concentrated in and around the capital of Vincennes and manage an uneasy peace with the indigenous nations in the larger area delineated for the territory, but not yet legally in their possession. 
Though Harrison did what he could to bring American citizens who murdered Native peoples to justice as a sign of good faith, he just as vigorously pursued new treaties with the indigenous nations to encourage more settlement in the territory. One of the first diplomatic tasks before him was to clear up exactly what land constituted the Vincennes tract of land that had been ceded by Native peoples in prior agreements. While the U.S. had a piece of paper that said the Vincennes tract was theirs, the prior treaty didn't specify just where that tract started and ended. In August 1802, Harrison entered into his first treaty council negotiation with representatives of the Eel Rivers, Kickapoos, Piankashaws, Potawatomis, and Wees peoples. As described by historian Robert Owens, quote, Harrison addressed the assemblage, speaking against the dangers of violence and alcohol and assuring them that President Jefferson had their best interest at heart. The speech failed to impress his native audience, and negotiations dragged into September. Part of Harrison's problem as a negotiator was, as noted by Owens, that he, quote, like most Americans, saw British intrigue at the heart of nearly any trouble the United States faced. The old tendency of seeing British and Indian interests as one and the same blinded Harrison and he overlooked the fact that most Northwestern Indians held little enthusiasm for British promises at this point. Despite his initial stumbles, Harrison worked with some of the Native representatives in attendance to convince the others to designate four of the chiefs at the council to return the next year to finalize a treaty. Two of the four chiefs that would return were Potawatomis, who had a questionable claim to the lands being negotiated over. But this would prove to be the first instance of Harrison employing what would become a regular strategy for him. Quote, the inclusion of tribes that had little claim to an area, which would increase the likelihood that they would agree to sell it. I should note here that Harrison was neither the first nor the last person of European descent who would employ this strategy when dealing with the native peoples of the Americas, but he would put it to good use during his tenure as governor of the Indiana Territory. Harrison's other major problems in the first year of his governorship dealt with internal tensions. When he arrived at Vincennes, he found that the territory was suffering from a labor problem, and the residents had divided into two camps with regards to a potential solution to it. Written into the ordinance that had created the Northwest Territory was a prohibition of slavery, but some, and in particular those settlers of French origins who had been in the area before the U.S. held claim over it, and more recent settlers from Virginia and Kentucky, felt that the answer to the labor shortage was to legalize slavery in the Indiana Territory. Those in the pro-slavery faction, as can be imagined, tended to be those who had the means to acquire enslaved individuals to help in their operations. Harrison himself had arrived in the territory with an enslaved individual who was presumably part of his inheritance from his familial ties in Virginia. So it's not surprising that in fall of 1802, he worked to call together a convention to consider the question of, quote, formally establishing slavery in the territory. The convention met in Vincennes on Christmas Day, 1802, and agreed to send a petition to Congress to suspend Article 6 of the Northwest Ordinance in the Indiana Territory for 10 years. Now, the reinstatement of Article 6, which would again prohibit slavery in the territory, would not be retroactive. Thus, any enslaved individuals in the territory up to that point would remain enslaved. A congressional committee considered the issue, but on March 2, 1803, reported to the House of Representatives that it, quote, 
would be highly dangerous and inexpedient to suspend Article 6 in the Indiana Territory, and thus the request was denied. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Harrison's counterpart in the Mississippi Territory, William C.C. Claiborne, also faced internal divisions upon taking up his post. The animosities in that territory, however, were more of a local offshoot of the larger political struggle between Democratic Republicans and Federalists. As a member of the former party, Claiborne naturally took up their cause as elections to the territorial legislature drew closer and would face sharp criticism from the faction aligned with Claiborne's predecessor as governor, Winthrop Sargent, and the territorial secretary, John Steele. Steele, despite still being a part of the territorial government, would use his authority to help the opposition to Claiborne's administration. Steele would be driven out of his post when his term ended in May 1802, but by that point, the damage was done. The territorial elections of July 1802 would find the anti-Claiborne faction gaining control of the territorial House of Representatives. Claiborne would at least retain the support of the appointed legislative council, and events would prove that he needed as much support as he could get to deal with the trials ahead. Unlike Harrison, Claiborne did not have many issues come up in the early part of his tenure related to indigenous nations in the area and the few that did were handled by Benjamin Hawkins, who we were introduced to last episode. Despite some confusion in directives coming from the federal government starting in the Adams administration as to the role of the territorial governor versus that of the designated agents in the territory, Hawkins continued to carry out his role in the territory as he had previously. He had conducted a series of negotiations with representatives from various native nations since Jefferson's inauguration in 1801, but none had proved successful from the American point of view, and the commissioners in the negotiations, including Hawkins, believed one leader to be responsible. William Augustus Bowles had been born in Maryland prior to the Revolution and had joined the British Army during that conflict. Due to circumstances beyond the scope of this podcast to explore in detail, Bowles was ultimately adopted by the Muskogee and became a leader in Muskogee society while at the same time maintaining close ties to the British. As in the Indiana Territory, it was seen that the British, through Bowles, were influencing affairs in the Mississippi Territory, and if they were ever going to make progress in negotiations with the native peoples in that area, something would have to be done about Bowles. This, however, was Hawkins' problem to solve, as Claiborne saw no reason to change the status quo by interjecting himself into those negotiations. Claiborne did receive reports on affairs related to Native peoples in other parts of the territory and, like Harrison, sought to prevent the sale of liquor to Indigenous peoples and interceded in incidences of violence and theft between Native peoples and white settlers. By and large, though, Claiborne's direct intervention in relations with Indigenous nations was in ensuring the safety and security of trading routes in and out of the territory, as well as in dealing with a growing number of Choctaws that were encamped near Natchez that, quote, sustained themselves mainly by theft and plunder. Claiborne's focus, however, was more on developments further downriver. 
As discussed back in episode 3.11, Governor Claiborne was quick to demand answers from his Spanish counterpart in Louisiana when he received news that the Port of New Orleans had been closed to American merchants. Despite his quick response, ultimately, there was little that Claiborne could do other than hear complaints that came to his office and wait anxiously for news from Washington and New Orleans as to a change in the situation. Claiborne addressed the Mississippi Territorial Legislature on December 9, 1802 about the situation and warned that, quote, he held out no prospect of immediate relief, but called for the legislature and the people, quote, to have faith in the federal government's ability to resolve the problem. As the frustrations continued to mount and the economic situation in the West grew ever more dire, Governor Claiborne and the legislature continued to appeal to the Jefferson administration for relief. In one of his letters to Secretary of State Madison, Claiborne made sure to note, quote, that there were about 2,000 militiamen in the territory who were pretty well organized, and that, given his knowledge about the strength of Spanish forces in New Orleans, he estimated that only 600 men were needed to take possession of the city. You know, if anyone wanted someone to just pop down and take it, hint, hint. In the meantime, neither the governor nor the settlers in the West were just sitting around and waiting for action. Though it was much further upriver than New Orleans, it was decided that Natchez could be prepared to serve as an alternate port from which to collect goods for shipment to the eastern seaboard in Europe. By early March, Governor Claiborne was able to report to Madison that Not only were operations proceeding forward and Western goods arriving daily in Natchez, but also that New Orleans had been partially reopened to Western trade. Spanish minister to the U.S. Arujo had put the pressure on the Spanish intendant in New Orleans, Morales, and was finally backed up by the Spanish government to restore the right of deposit, quote, until the two governments could agree about another equivalent place. The Spanish government's restoration of the right of deposit was known in Washington, D.C. as of April 19th, and Arujo forwarded the directive on to New Orleans, where it was received and immediately acted upon on May 17th. Despite this reversal, it was clear to those American settlers in the West that a permanent solution was needed. As they contemplated their economic independence from foreign powers, so too did others around the same time off the coast of Georgia seek their freedom. In 1803, a group of Igbo people, originally from what is now Nigeria, who had been enslaved and transported across the Atlantic, were sold near Savannah, Georgia, and their new owner made arrangements for them to be transported to St. Simon's Island. While the ship was off the coast of the island, those enslaved aboard were able to successfully revolt against the ship's crew and, quote, force them into the water where they drowned. The problem, however, was that these newly freed individuals were still far from their home, and likely would not have had the knowledge of how to successfully sail an early 19th century European-style vessel back to their homeland. Thus, the ship ran aground. For reasons that are likely to forever remain shrouded in history, these individuals decided to, quote, take to the marsh and drown themselves. It is outside of the scope of this podcast to delve too much into the subject of death by suicide and the population of enslaved individuals of the time, and whether this was done out of desperation or was a symbolic act to reclaim power. To explore that subject in further detail, I recommend Terry Snyder's essay in the Journal of American History entitled Suicide, Slavery, and Memory in North America, which was my primary source for recounting this event. I should also note that, from my research, the Igbo Landing Slave Revolt does not seem to have been too well known in the print media or in white American society at the time. That being said, 
Not only did I feel it important to note this event as a reminder of the role of the slave system in the United States of 1804, but this story was so well told in the enslaved community for decades to come that, when the Federal Writers Project of the 1930s sought to interview the people still alive at the time who had previously been enslaved and their families, people interviewed in the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands shared the story of the Igbo Landing slave revolt with interviewers. The story of freedom, no matter how well publicized or shared in discrete circles, has not been, nor will it ever be solely a story of white Americans, as the Igbo demonstrate. There was much anticipation in Washington, D.C. about news on the negotiations with the French, but with the end of the congressional session in March 1803, Jefferson decided to make a quick trip back to Monticello. He was back in the national capital when news arrived that the Spanish government had agreed to restore the right of deposit but he was still anxious about how to proceed in the West. He wrote to Dr. Hugh Williamson, his old colleague from the Continental Congress, that, quote, Although I do not count with confidence on obtaining New Orleans from France for money, yet I am confident in the policy of putting off the day of contention for it. The president expressed his exasperation for those, in particular Federalists, clamoring for New Orleans to be taken by force when he wrote, quote, To have seized New Orleans as our federal maniacs wished would only have changed the character and extent of the blockade of our Western commerce. It would have produced a blockade by two superior naval forces of the navigation of the river as well as of the entrance into New Orleans instead of a paper blockade from New Orleans alone while the river remained open. While the spring did not bring news of the results of Monroe's mission, there was still much for the government to consider. The administration learned around the end of April or early May that Great Britain and France were going back to war. Naturally, Secretary of State James Madison evaluated the situation through the lens of what it meant for the United States and wrote in a private letter to Monroe that, quote, I hope we shall be wise enough to shun their follies and fortunate enough to turn them by honest means to our just interest. You will probably have arrived very critically for the purpose. The president would likely have had this development and what it meant for the United States on his mind as well, but a good portion of his attention was on the preparations for something that had been an ambition of his for quite some time, as Meriwether Lewis spent the first half of 1803 preparing to launch the Transcontinental Expedition. With funding secured from Congress, Jefferson had begun instructing Lewis, quote, in the use of the sextant and other measuring institutions, and making arrangements for Lewis to gather information and supplies from various sources in other parts of the United States. In addition to the maps in the President's collection, Jefferson arranged for Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, who was, quote, a serious map collector, to work with Lewis. Gallatin arranged for a map to be prepared for Lewis, quote, showing North America from the Pacific coast to the Mississippi with all the information that was currently available and with, quote, a few wild guesses as to what the Rockies might look like in the course of the Columbia River. Jefferson and Lewis would spend evenings in the president's house, sometimes going well into the wee hours, discussing the details of the expedition and trying to anticipate all their needs in terms of equipment, coping with the climatological conditions, examining flora and fauna, and in dealing with indigenous peoples that they should meet along the way. They put their heads together to anticipate all that they could, and Lewis used the time to put together a tentative timeline. He would gather provisions and make what preparations were needed on the East Coast, then make his way west, where he would recruit men for the journey along the way. 
His plan was to be in St. Louis by August 1st and get as far as he could up the Missouri River before settling into winter camp. When March 15, 1803 arrived, the clock was a-ticking, and it was time for action. On that date, Meriwether Lewis left the president's house in which he had lived and served for nearly two years and made his way to Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which was the site of the arsenal for the U.S. Army. Not only was Lewis seeking arms and ammunition for the expedition, but he needed the craftsmen at Harper's Ferry to construct a collapsible iron boat frame that he and Jefferson had devised. However, rather than this being a quick pit stop on the way as was originally planned, Lewis stayed on at Harper's Ferry to personally oversee the construction of the boat. He used the time to reach out to contacts in the West to get some preparations moving out there. But Jefferson grew concerned that this was eating away into time for other plans that Jefferson considered valuable. As noted by historian Stephen Ambrose, quote, He, i.e. Lewis, by this point had made his first important independent decisions, where to spend his fast disappearing time, and what boat to build. This was the beginning of a new relationship with Jefferson. The further Lewis got from Washington, D.C., the less direct influence Jefferson would have over the course of the expedition. Lewis finally continued on in mid-April and went up to Philadelphia both to gather provisions and to consult with various learned authorities in and around the city, including Andrew Ellicott, who was mentioned back in episodes 2.15, 2.24, and 3.7 for his dealings with General James Wilkinson back in the Mississippi Territory, as well as Dr. Benjamin Rush, who we've discussed in episodes dealing with the yellow fever outbreaks in Philadelphia in the 1790s and who last appeared in the Adams post-presidency episode, episode 2.25. After making arrangements for the transportation of the provisions that he had purchased to Pittsburgh, in mid-June, Lewis made his way back to Washington, D.C. for a final conference with Jefferson before heading west. While Lewis had been away, President Jefferson had been busy preparing the official instructions which would guide Lewis and the expedition, and in so doing, he consulted with various members of the cabinet. Secretary of State James Madison had little to add, though he did pose a critical question as to whether, quote, the laws of the United States give any authority at present beyond the limits of the U.S. Lewis and his party would be traveling beyond the established borders of the nation and possibly into territory claimed by other nations. What legal protections and rights would they really have, especially considering, as discussed in episode 3.12, the Spanish government was not too keen on the expedition in the first place and considered it to be a first step towards further American expansion west. Next up was the response from Treasury Secretary Gallatin. Gallatin requested that Jefferson add to the instructions for the expedition to gather intelligence, quote, about the Spanish post in Louisiana and the British activities along the Missouri River. He was not squeamish about admitting the importance of this mission to future American interests in the West, going so far as to write that, quote, the future destinies of the Missouri country are of vast importance to the United States, it being perhaps the only large tract of country and certainly the first which, lying out of the boundaries of the Union, will be settled by the people of the United States. Attorney General Levi Lincoln also did not hesitate to share with the president that, quote, I consider the enterprise of national consequence and, to a degree, personally hazardous to the projectors and individual adventurers. In addition to the physical challenges for the members of the expedition, Lincoln warned that, quote, in the perverse, hostile, and malignant state of the opposition, 
with their facility of imposing on the public mind and producing excitements, every measure originating with the executive will be attacked. With a virulence in proportion to the patriotism of the motive, the wisdom of the means, and the probable utility of its execution. Lincoln advised that some of the antagonism to the mission would be quelled if Jefferson attached to it an added goal of bringing, quote, religion and morality to the native peoples to be found in those lands along the way, as, quote, if the enterprise appears to be an attempt to advance them, it will by many people on that count be justified, however calamitous the issue. When Lewis arrived back in Washington, Jefferson shared the draft instructions with him, and together, the two worked to finalize the document. During this process, and as the mission scope seemed to grow ever larger, they considered one major shift in their plans. As noted by Ambrose, quote, The instructions called for information in so many areas that one man could hardly provide it all, and certainly could not do it all well. It was plain common sense to have two officers. A second officer would be a help in enforcing discipline and in fighting Indians if it came to that. Though a second officer would also increase the cost of the expedition, it would help to ensure its success with the right man being brought on board. Luckily, Lewis had someone in mind, and Jefferson had even received another recommendation for the same candidate back in December, as we discussed in episode 3.12. During his Army tenure, Meriwether Lewis had been transferred into the Chosen Rifle Company, a company, quote, of elite riflemen sharpshooters, which was under the command of a fellow Virginian, Captain William Clark. Though Clark resigned his commission six months later, as described by Ambrose, quote, in that six months together, Lewis and Clark had taken each other's measure. They complimented each other. Clark was a tough woodsman accustomed to command. He had been a company commander and had led a party down the Mississippi as far as Natchez. He had a way with enlisted men without ever getting familiar. He was a better territorial surveyor than Lewis and a better waterman. In general, in areas in which Lewis was shaky, Clark was strong, and vice versa. Thus, on June 19, 1803, Meriwether Lewis wrote to William Clark to, as he stated, provide him with, quote, a summary view of the plan, the means, and the objects of this expedition, and would conclude the letter with the big ask. Quote, if therefore there is anything under those circumstances in this enterprise which would induce you to participate with me in its fatigues, its dangers, and its honors, believe me, there is no man on earth with whom I should feel equal pleasure in sharing them as with yourself. On June 20th, Jefferson completed his final set of instructions to Lewis on the mission. The focus of the expedition would be, quote, exploration and commerce. And among the various goals of the mission were, quote, to explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as, by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. Quote, to make yourself acquainted as far as the diligent pursuit of your journey shall admit with the indigenous peoples of the lands through which they journeyed, and to make various botanical, biological, climatological, ecological, geologic, and archaeological observations. Jefferson also empowered Lewis to designate his successor, quote, on the accident of your death. As Lewis made more purchases of supplies and preparations for the journey, Jefferson and his administration made their final contributions to the effort. 
Secretary of War Henry Dearborn authorized the Army Paymaster on June 29th to supply Lewis with $554, quote, being six months' pay for one lieutenant, one sergeant, one corporal, and ten privates that Lewis would recruit from Army garrisons along the way. Dearborn also sent messages to the commanding officers that they were to cooperate with Lewis without question and, on July 2nd, provided Lewis with an additional, quote, authorization to select up to 12 non-commissioned officers and privates from the post, which would hopefully ensure that Lewis could choose the members of the expedition without any questions from the commanders who would be losing good men from their service in the process. Jefferson authorized the War Department to give Lewis an 18-month advance on his salary, which, as Ambrose notes, was, quote, possibly for land speculation or to pay off debts. In case that wasn't enough, Jefferson gave Lewis a letter on July 4th asserting that, quote, I hereby authorize you to draw on the Secretaries of State, of the Treasury, of War, and of the Navy of the U.S. according as you may find your draughts will be most negotiable for the purpose of obtaining money or necessaries for yourself and your men. And I solemnly pledge the faith of the United States that these draughts shall be paid punctually at the date they are made payable. I also ask of the consuls, agents, merchants, and citizens of any nation with which we have intercourse or amity to furnish you with those supplies which your necessaries may call for, assuring them of honorable and prompt retribution. In essence, Jefferson was providing Lewis with a limitless credit card to use in case of emergencies. Beyond just providing him with funds from the federal government, Jefferson also gave Lewis $108 of his own money. The president was determined to ensure that nothing would disrupt the expedition, and before Lewis could set off, they would learn one key bit of information, namely, that Lewis and his party would be traveling in American territory for much longer than they had anticipated. A ship arrived from La Havre, France, in Boston, Massachusetts, on June 28th, bearing the news of the Louisiana Purchase and word passed down the eastern seaboard to finally arrive on Jefferson's doorstep on July 3rd. The president was elated, as you can imagine, and arranged for Samuel Harrison Smith to print the news of the purchase in the National Intelligencer the following day, the 4th of July. Though they knew none of the details as to where the borders of the newly acquired territory were or how much the purchase price had been, Jefferson wrote to his son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, on the 5th, that, quote, This removes from us the greatest source of danger to our peace. Not everyone, however, was quite so thrilled. When reporting the news of the Louisiana Purchase, a Federalist newspaper in Boston pronounced the Louisiana colony to be, quote, a great waste, a wilderness unpeopled with any beings except wolves and wandering Indians. We are to give money of which we have too little for land of which we already have too much. We'll be talking much more about the reaction to the purchase and how the Jefferson administration and the U.S. government worked out the details of integrating these new lands into the nation in future episodes. But with our next episode, I'd like to get caught up on what was going on in the Mediterranean. Though the Louisiana Purchase has taken up a good deal of the narrative the last few episodes, we must still remember that the U.S. was also engaged in a naval war with the Barbary powers of North Africa. Thus, it's there that we'll pick up next time. Before we part ways, I wanted to include a few shout-outs. First, I've had two reviews posted recently on Apple Podcasts by fellow podcasters that I wanted to acknowledge. The first was from Wanting About Her Story, and it was titled, 
how did I not know this? This podcast is informative, well-researched, and entertaining. I'm constantly wondering, how did I not know this? Especially as an American listener, I feel like I'm gaining a better understanding of our country's political history and am able to better understand current events. Keep up the great work. The second review was from Plotting Through the Presidents and is titled Scholarly But Accessible, meticulously researched and related in an entertaining narrative way by a passionate writer. Truly excellent history for those looking for a deep dive. Dive in. Thanks so much for those reviews. Both Whining About Her Story and Plotting Through the Presidents are great podcasts that I subscribe to personally and that I can't recommend enough. I also wanted to take a moment to acknowledge my first patron. Prior to the COVID-19 epidemic hitting the U.S., I was beginning work to start up a Patreon account because, as you can imagine, monthly hosting costs, research materials for the podcast, and planned technology upgrades are not cheap. However, with the current state of things, my page was created, but I hit pause on the project for the time being. Despite my pause, I had a listener do a bit of research to not only find my bare Patreon page, but also pledge a contribution. Thus, I'd like to do a special shout-out to Kara for becoming my first patron. When I reached out to offer my thanks, she shared that she was motivated to pledge as, quote, it is evident how much research and work goes into your podcast and that she wanted to support my efforts. With Kara's encouragement, I've started working on the Patreon page once more and will be posting the link to it on the website as well as on my social media should any others be so inclined to support this project. Speaking of support, Special thanks again to Alan of the Political History of the United States for providing the intro quote for this episode. Special thanks also to friends of the podcast, The Itinerant Band, who have graciously allowed me to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as our intro and outro music. To learn more about the Political History of the United States podcast, The Itinerant Band, or this podcast, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. There's tons of information on there, as well as past episodes. And you can also learn about the show's first sponsor, the Hero Soap Company. Given the current state of affairs, cleanliness is more important than ever. And the Hero Soap Company uses natural ingredients and essential oils to craft products that will soothe and cleanse your skin. Even better, they donate a percentage of their proceeds to charities that support veterans, first responders, and their families. By using the direct link on the website or going to Hero Soap Company, that's all one word, dot com, and using the promo code PRESIDENCIES at checkout, you'll not only help support those who have served the U.S. on the front lines at home and abroad, you'll also help me to offset the cost of this podcast, ensuring that I'm able to keep going on this journey for years to come. I can't thank all of you enough for the support that you've given me thus far. The fact that both the sponsorship opportunity and my first patron both came in the last few weeks, has proved to me just how much my efforts mean to all of you. And I hope that, through offering numerous options for you, with your continued support, this journey will proceed forward at a strong pace and will take us down paths of exploring presidential history that we may not have been able to go down otherwise. Though I may be the sole host, this isn't a solo project by any stretch, and I couldn't do this without all of you. Thank you so much. And until next time, Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.